You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 145 this morning. If you're using one of the, the black hardcover Bibles that Jordan just mentioned a moment ago, page 524 uh, is where you can find that text in those. For about a, a hundred years or so, Maxwell House was one of the best-selling coffee brands in the United States. Uh, so if you were born during or before the 1980s, or maybe even if you were born after the 1980s, you almost certainly know the slogan for Maxwell House. Somebody shout it out. Maxwell House, good to the last drop. In the first service and this one both, it's like the most participatory we've ever been, call and response in a worship service, Maxwell House. Good to the last drop. Good to the last drop. Now, the irony is, at least to a lot of people, Maxwell House coffee doesn't taste good at all. I actually started typing Maxwell House into the search bar this week, and one of the first things that popped up was, why is Maxwell House coffee so bad? And if we were to start serving it at our coffee hour, I think we would have maybe a small revolt on our hands, at least from some of you who really appreciate different kinds of coffee. So, Whatever your, whatever your taste in coffee, I just want you to consider that phrase for a moment this morning. Good to the last drop. All the way through, from top to bottom, beginning to end, always in every moment, fully and only good. It's an audacious claim. And it's certainly one that just can't hold up. Even the biggest Maxwell House fan has certainly at some point in his or her life had a bad sip or a bad cup. It can't really be good to the last drop. Of far greater significance, the scriptures make this kind of audacious claim about God, that he is always and only good. And there's a skeptical part of us, maybe the one that was you know, advertised to that Maxwell House was good to the last drop, maybe that same part of us, that immediately rises up and says, well, surely God's not always good, not in every moment, Because how are we going to account for all the the miserable, awful, horrible stuff? Psalm 145 is the last of the Psalms attributed to King David. David writes a lot of the Psalms that we have in this book. This is the last one attributed to him. And it's a song of praise for all of these attributes and all of these acts that God has done. It's a Psalm that really testifies to the scope of God's goodness. And as I get ready to read it for us in a moment, I want you to consider today not only the words, but the life of the author. We would not objectively call, nor would he, every moment of David's life good. So it's true. He he was the one that slayed giants, and he was the one that accomplished incredible victories. He's the one that carried the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But he also was the one that was hunted down and pursued by Saul. For a long time, he was the one who was forced to leave his throne in Jerusalem and flee. He was mocked by his wife. He was a man who lost, as far as we know, three sons. He lost three of his sons. One as a consequence of his own sin, another one to vengeance, vigilante justice, and a third one to betrayal and rebellion. And so Psalm 145 is not a series of slogans, It's not a series of cliches written to sell a book or an album or 
a mediocre cup of coffee? When David here writes about the abundant goodness of God, the scope of God's goodness, these are not the naive hopes of someone who is new to faith and saying like, well, I've heard Christians say words like these, so I'm just going to say the same kind of phrases. These are the hard-fought, deep, experiential conclusions of a whole life of faith. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm 145. I'm going to read verses 1 through the beginning of 13, and then I'm going to skip down to the end and read the last verse, which is 21. So Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Of the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works, verse 10, shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And then skip down to verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, even as we have celebrated together this morning already, you promise never to break your covenant with us. And so amid all of the changing words of our generation, we ask that you would now speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious and loving promises with faithful and obedient lives. And we pray all of these things through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. Let's consider just two things this morning from these verses in Psalm 145. The scope of God's goodness and the scope of our response. The scope of God's goodness and the scope of our response. So first, the scope of God's goodness. Something we miss in the, uh, the English translation of this psalm and some other psalms as well is that in the original Hebrew, Psalm 145 is an acrostic poem. And so each line, each phrase starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's not the only time this happens in the psalms. And whenever it does happen in the Psalms, it's because the author wants to convey a sense of comprehensiveness, a sense of completeness. So you can think about it this morning. How could you possibly convey the scope of God and who he is and what he's done? How could you convey the scope of God's goodness? You can't. You can't. Like the Apostle John will write many years later about Jesus' works, If you wrote all of the stuff down, the world itself would not be large enough to contain all the books. But at least with an acrostic poem, David can start to convey a sense of that scope. He's saying, hey, start to finish, 
alpha to omega, beginning to end, all the way through, this is who God is. If you remember from a few weeks back as we began this series, God's goodness is this really broad kind of umbrella term. And it means that God deals well and bountifully, that God is generous to all that he has made. One author says that the whole catalog of mercy and grace and long-suffering and abundance of truth are summed up in this one word. And like few other places in the Bible, we get a real sense of that in Psalm 145. David pens, as maybe you heard as I was reading it, adjective after adjective trying to just get at, in some way, the scope. So verse 3, he writes, Great is the Lord, his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 5, he talks about the splendor of God's majesty. In verse 7, he talks about God's abundant goodness. In verse 7, he also talks about God's righteousness, that he does what's right. And then in verses 8 and 9, it comes really rapid fire. And, and borrowing from using God's own description of himself, when God revealed himself to Moses centuries earlier in Exodus chapter 34, um, and this is actually the fifth time that that text from Exodus is referenced in the Psalms, David writes here that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, meaning patient or long-suffering, and abounding in steadfast love. Or in summary, verse 9, God is good to all. So this is maybe not that whole catalog that that one author was saying, not every aspect of God's goodness, but Psalm 145 has a lot of it, a lot of the catalog right here. And at least for me, and maybe this is the case for you too, this scope that we see in Psalm 145 is both encouraging and frustrating. So let me explain that a little bit. It's encouraging that God has such varied and comprehensive ways to display his goodness. That, that you and I can see evidences of his goodness in all of these ways. Sometimes by his direct and his powerful intervention. Sometimes by his restraint and his patience. For example, when we suffer in life, we can see God's goodness as the suffering produces endurance and the endurance produces character and the, and the character produces hope. But on the other hand, when God rescues us from suffering, when God protects us from suffering, we can see his goodness in not having to go through something hard or miserable. And the specific display of the goodness of God in my life will never look exactly the same as the specific display of his goodness in, in yours or in anyone else's. So that can be really encouraging. But at times it's frustrating too, is it not? That, that because it isn't exactly the same, it can feel unfair. It can feel inconsistent. And because God's goodness can take the form of either patience or action, it can be intervening or not intervening. It's like kind of this, this cosmic divine cheat code that, that whenever we would want to accuse God of doing wrong, of not being good, it just bounces right off of him because he's always doing good, no matter if he's intervening or not intervening or being patient or being active. It's a little bit like when we say something like, man, you know what? God has been so faithful to me. God's been so faithful to me. And it's 100% true. But when has God ever been unfaithful? When has he ever been unfaithful? As Paul says in 2 Timothy, 
God can't be unfaithful. He's always faithful. For God to be unfaithful would actually be the equivalent of him disowning himself. And so we're the ones that are sometimes unfaithful and faithless. God remains faithful. Here's the thing. You and I like to evaluate God's character by our circumstances. We like to evaluate God's character and decide who he is based on what we're experiencing in our lives. And so when we say God is good, what we almost always mean is things are pretty good for me right now. When we say God has been so faithful to me, what we almost always mean is things are pretty good for me right now. And that's understandable. We see the world through the lenses of our, of our circumstances. We can't not do that. And we can only experience and engage with God through the life we have. As people of faith, we will always be sifting through how our circumstances are connected to God's nature and God's character. But when we begin to evaluate God's character by our circumstances, that's when we've gotten things backward. That's when we've picked the wrong starting point. That's, That's starting with me and then trying to figure out how God fits into my story. When in reality, if there's a God who created the whole world and who created me, then this is actually his story. This is his world. And we are the ones who fit into his story, not the other way around. The tragic thing about getting this backward is that we'll actually miss the scope of God's goodness. It will cut it off and will cap our understanding of God's goodness at the limits of what you and I can see just in our own lives and circumstances. And what I want you to hear this morning is that your circumstances are significant. They matter. They matter, but that's, they're not the whole story. There's actually God's story, which is so much bigger than our own. You think of it a little bit like this. It's kind of like a barbecue judge, you know, ribs and brisket and pulled pork and all that kind of stuff. A barbecue judge who has only ever eaten central Pennsylvania barbecue and says, well, I guess this is what barbecue is. I'm going to evaluate all their other barbecue based on what I've tasted in central Pennsylvania. And I want to be like, oh, friend, if you only knew. And I want to tell you about a magical land called Kansas City. And I want to tell you about an an even larger magical land called Texas. And you can visit those places and have better barbecue than you've ever tasted here. See, in a world, in a world where Kansas City and Texas exist, we should never evaluate barbecue by central Pennsylvania standards. And more importantly, nor should we ever settle for only perceiving God's goodness based on what our immediate circumstances are telling us. The scope of God's goodness is so much bigger than that. It's so much more comprehensive than that. The reality, verse 3 here in Psalm 145, is that the scope is actually unsearchable. Unsearchable, it's beyond us. But at least when we try to search it out, when we start with God rather than our own circumstances, we at least remain open to see all that we can see, to soak up and to treasure in our hearts all the evidences of God's goodness that are out there for us to perceive. In 21st century America, you and I are always being formed very deeply to start with self. To start with yourself, with your story, and to see how everything else fits into it. And so we think of ourselves, can we acknowledge this this morning? We think of ourselves much larger and much more significant than we actually are. And this has just become so normal so ingrained in everything from advertising to customer service to social media that we hardly even notice this anymore. 
We have to take intentional steps to be counterformed in the true story of the world, in God's broader story. And so just very practically speaking, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. At least once this coming week, and if you can do this once every week, I would say do that. But at least once this coming week, find a way to feel small. Find a way to feel small. Maybe that's on a, on a clear night. Turn off all the screens in your house and sit outside and look up and the, at the sky. Or maybe it's taking a drive or a hike to a, a place where there's a vantage point that you can actually see a great distance. This week, I was in western Pennsylvania for a couple days, and on Thursday, I had just an hour to kind of sit by myself without any other agenda, any other kind of structure to that time. And I was able to sit up on an elevated kind of platform and look out over this really hilly part of western Pennsylvania. And and it was a cloudy day, but the sun was out, so I could see the shadows of these clouds moving really rapidly across these rolling hills. And I just can't tell you the last time I remember slowing down enough to see that. And it made me feel in the best possible way, small. It was really good for my soul to just feel small. And like my life and my circumstances weren't as big as I often make them out to be. I'm sure you can think of other ideas for how to do that, but do that once this week. And whatever it is, let it become a a tangible reminder that this really is God's world. This is God's story. And that you and I fit into it and not he into our story. Let it remind you that, that the scope of God's goodness is infinitely more vast than you and I would ever be able to perceive if all we looked at was the circumstances of our own lives, good or bad. Second, second, let's talk about the scope of our response. This acrostic poem here in Psalm 145 is not only pointing to the scope of God's goodness, but actually the scope of our response. And maybe you heard it as I read it. David uses all of these varied words, almost as if he pulled out his old Hebrew thesaurus and just went to town trying to describe what our response is. So how should we respond to who God is? Well, we extol God which means to say how great he is. We bless God, which means that we speak well of him. We praise God, which means we we honor him, we glorify him for all of his magnificent qualities. We commend God, we speak highly of him. We declare things about God, we make bold pronouncements publicly. We meditate, we inwardly digest and ingest and savor what God has done and who he is. We speak, David writes, which is others-directed. It's not just saying these things back to God or meditating on them in our own heart. It's actually saying them to other people. Similarly, we, we pour forth God's fame. We become fans of God. We become fans of who he is and the work that he's done, and we tell other people, he's famous. Here's the stuff he's done. We sing aloud. We give thanks. On and on, David goes. And we do many of these things as the bookends of this psalm say, forever and ever. It's like how the the ESV study Bible, a note from the ESV study Bible summed it up. It said, it will take many worshipers and a long duration to even begin to do justice to what the Lord deserves. It will take many worshipers and a long duration to even begin to do justice to what the Lord deserves. And so I want to ask you friends this morning, How much time and energy do you give 
to responding like this to the goodness of God, to meditating on it, to declaring it, to extolling or blessing God for it. Maybe even more specifically, do you at least spend as much time there doing these things as you spend struggling, questioning, doubting, and complaining about the ways it's hard to see God's goodness? We're all going to do that. We're all going to spend some time and energy, if we're honest, doing those things and struggling and complaining. But do we spend as much time responding like this as we do with our doubting and struggling? There's something that's so flawed about our perception. There's something that's so flawed about our very nature as human beings that we just tend to skip right over all the goodness. And gifts become expectations in a moment. And gratitude becomes entitlement in a moment. And then we devote this massively disproportionate amount of time and energy to the questions and to the gaps rather than actually spending the time and energy to see the foundational and comprehensive scope of the goodness of God. For instance, for instance, Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus Christ right now and always, as far back as eternity goes, upholds the universe by the word of his power. When's the last time you've given any time or energy to that thought? When's the last time you gave energy to responding to that incredible gift and reality? Many days, I don't give that a passing thought. And I'm a pastor. I get paid to do stuff like this. We just skip right over it. And if we skip over God's foundational goodness enough, if we start to be formed in this, that, that process of skipping over it, we start to become blind. We start to believe lies, or at least become really susceptible to believing lies. One recent example, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and the conversation on this podcast was about some of the damage that's been done to a lot of people by, um, by what's known as Christian purity culture. If you're not familiar with that term, it's, um, it really characterized a number of decades in the kind of the broader evangelical church where sex was seen more as gross than as a gift and, and the conversations around it were emphasized more by shame and silence rather than open and honest dialogue. And the, the podcasters, the, the hosts, were not wrong in, in opening up this conversation. A lot of damage has been done to a lot of people in Jesus' name through some goofy things. But in this podcast, I think getting really caught up in the moment, one of the contributors said that over the last several decades, she thought that the Christian sexual ethic may have done more harm than good. And all of a sudden, we've now moved in a single moment from a legitimate and painful struggle to utter arrogance and ignorance. Utter arrogance and ignorance. All of a sudden, we've become so myopic, so nearsighted and narrow-sighted that we might as well be blind. To, to even get close to saying something like that, that, that the Christian sexual ethic has done more harm than good, you have to assume that people would all by themselves land on a sexual ethic that is loving and caring and safe and fulfilling, all on their own. You have to skip over all of the ways God's design and the Christian sexual ethic has brought healing and redemption to countless thousands of people. You have to skip over all the restraint, all the protection a Christian sexual ethic has brought. I don't know if you've ever read any history of some of the different peoples and cultures of the world and what they were like even in their sexual ethic before the gospel came and transformed their society. It's not good. 
It's not good at all. We're, we're kind of obsessed right now in this cultural moment with Vikings. We watch like Viking shows all the time. The real historical people, the Vikings, you think that sexual ethic is better? You think what, what they believed and how they acted was better? It's horrible. And I, and I really hope you hear what I'm saying this morning. I'm not denying that Christians have to really come to terms with horrible things done in Jesus' name. I'm not denying that, nor am I saying, more to the point, that when you're struggling to see how your circumstances are compatible with God's goodness, because you're going to struggle with that in your life, that you should just sweep it under the rug and put a smile on your face. So please don't hear me say any of that. We have to attend to those things. God invites us and calls us to attend to those things. What I'm saying this morning is don't become so narrowly fixated that you become blind. Widen your view to see as much of you can, as you can of the scope of God's goodness. Devote time and energy to respond in all of these ways that David is describing here. Don't let, you have to fight for this. Don't let the gifts become expectations. Don't let gratitude become entitlement. Our response to God's goodness, as we see here, never stands alone. As we bless, as we extol God, it joins this eternal chorus of all of God's works, of all of creation doing the same. And our response is actually inviting and encouraging other people to respond as we are. That's how the psalm comes to an end there in verse 21. David writes, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And I want you to hear in that both the personal and the universal. It's my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let who? All flesh bless his holy name. It's personal and it's universal. It does include what's going on in your life. It does include your circumstances, but it's just so much more broad than that. This morning, I hope you leave this room, and I mean this in the best possible way, I hope you leave this room feeling smaller than when you came in. I hope your circumstances, though significant, though they matter, I hope your circumstances feel appropriately smaller compared to the scope of God's goodness. God is not good because your life feels good today, if that's where you are. God is good because God is good and he has displayed that. He is displaying that right now on both a universal cosmic scale and in intimately personal ways. God is the one who created the world. Humanity is the one that corrupted the world by our sin. But through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus redeems the world. And Jesus is restoring the world. Remember today that you and I fit into that story. It's not God who we have to try to force fit into ours. You and I fit into that story. And as David says here in verse nine, the Lord is good to all. So may we perceive the scope of his goodness. May we respond with all the praise that he's due. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you this morning, Father. Help us to see so that we might praise you for making your divine truth real to us, for all of the ways that you have been good. Forgive us for being so narrowly viewed, for, for evaluating you and your character and nature based on our circumstances, and help us 
because we're going to struggle to do that our entire lives. So help us to not start with ourselves. Help us to start with you. Help us to feel in the most beautiful way, smaller. And I pray even as we come to this table this morning, that we would see that our smallness does not mean you love us any less. You love us and you have shown us unbelievable mercy and grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But we are part of such a greater, more cosmic, universal story that you are accomplishing. We are part of that greater goodness and the goodness that belongs to your nature and character. Help us to see it even now by the power of your spirit this morning. We pray all that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.